Hi, folks. It's Rabbi Sharon Brous here. You are listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. Shabbat shalom, everyone. We welcome you. We're reading this morning Parshat Korach in the book of Numbers, in the book of Bamidbar. And rarely in the Torah is there a time in which the gap between the way a text reads and the way a text is read is greater than in Parshat Korach. So, so let's start with the way the text is read. Some of you may be familiar with this narrative. The way that we learn the story is that Korach, along with a band of fellow insurrectionists, Tatan and Aviram, approach Moshe and Aaron in the desert, little over a year on their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, having been freed from slavery in the desert. And they approach him with a whole group behind them, and they make fierce demands that Moses steps away from leadership. They threaten to crumble the entirety of the system that has been established in order to hold the people and to hold the law in this time of incredible fragility for the people. And Moses really has no choice but to shut down this insurrection with violence. And incredible violence does ensue. Many people die. They die from burning. They die from the earth opening up and swallowing them. They die from plague. And only then are we able to move forward and move on. Moses and Aaron's strength having been established as the leaders that they were called to be of our people. That's how this story is told. That's how our rabbis read this story over the generations. But that's not how the story reads in the book. And, and we'll have a few moments later today as we go to our Torah service to actually read what it says and, and to take it in for ourselves. But what you might find, and, and what I find continually when we approach Parshat Korach year after year, is a very different narrative, and I'm not alone. I, I'm not alone in struggling with this. Here's what Korach actually says when he steps before Moshe and Aharon. Rav lechem. It's too much for you. The whole community, this whole community is holy, and God dwells among all of us. That's what the text says. Now, many people will point out that even though that's what the text says, that's not what it actually means. Those are the words that come out of Korach's mouth. But what Korach actually means is, I want the power, Moshe. I don't want you to have the power. I feel disempowered by the power that you hold. And certainly that's the way Moshe responds. And it's true that after that initial interaction, things get really ugly. A and it's true that Datan and Aviram, that they say terrible things like, you promised you were going to take us to the land of milk and honey, and here we are now. We were better off in Egypt unimaginable words to be spoken by and to formerly enslaved people. But all of that comes after Moshe responds to Korach's initial statement, Kulam Kedoshim, 
All of us are holy. There's holiness in every one of us, not only in you. And God dwells among us too. I want to ask us to consider this morning that the great failure in Parshat Korach was not Korach's unlimited desire for power or his ego, but that perhaps the failure of this Parsha was Moshe's inability to hear him when he came forward and asked the leader to hear a narrative that contradicted the narrative that he knew and understood in his heart. And that perhaps when things got really amped up and ugly and ultimately led to violence, that wouldn't have happened had Moshe heard that initial complaint in a different way. Had he brought those who objected in the way that they did closer, instead of pushing them away, perhaps this story could have gone very, very differently. There's a, there's a midrash that I'm always drawn to when we come to Parsha Korach because of all of the many lines of rabbinic literature written to try to understand this narrative. This one's different from all of them. From Midrash Shochar Tov, we read the following. That Korach actually stood before the people in that moment and told the story of one person, one widow. This was a woman whose husband had died. She was left with two children. They were hungry. They were poor. They were cast out from the community. So she went out to plow her field. And when she did, Moses approached her. And Moses said, you cannot plow with an ox and an ass together. You need to stop. So then she went out to sow the field. And when she did, Moses went out and approached her and said, thou shalt not sow the field with diverse seeds. So then she went out to reap and stack the corn. But when she did, Moses said, you need to leave the gleanings of your field and the corner of the field for the poor. So she switched over to threshing. And when she did, Moses said, you have to give tithes to the Levites. So she threw her hands up in despair and she sold her field. And she bought two lambs. And when she did, Aaron approached her and said, you need to give me the firstborn. For it says that every firstborn of the flock and herd shall be consecrated to the Lord. Until finally this woman, poor, cast out, and desperate, says that she has no more strength to withstand these men and their laws. So she decides that she has nothing to do other than slaughter the animals to eat them. And when she does, Aaron approaches her and tells her that she needs to give the shoulder and the cheeks and the maw to the holy ones who are serving God. So she leaves weeping along with her two daughters. Such was the lot that befell this unfortunate woman, the Midrash says, so much that they do in the name of the Holy Blessed One. Think for a moment about what that kind of protest means. If we allow ourselves to read the story as it reads and not as it is read, if we allow ourselves to hear the voice of protest that rises up against Moses and Aaron and their harsh and constricting form of, of legal containment, can we hear the voice of the desperate, the voice of the invisible, the voice of the marginalized? I think this is really important for us, on this Shabbat especially. Sammy mentioned earlier that we're marking the fifth anniversary 
of the massacre at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. And many of us remember exactly where we were when we heard what happened that day, when a 29-year-old man who was pledging allegiance to the Islamic State walked into this space and murdered 49 people in a three-hour standoff. Unimaginable. This was the deadliest, this was the most horrific act of anti-LGBTQ violence in American history. And I remember reading the stories of many of the people who died that day and the survivors too. And I remember being struck by two particular threads that I heard over and over again as I read these stories. First, the fact that many of the families of those who lost their lives found out for the first time that their child or their brother or their family member was LGBTQ only after they had been massacred in this club. And second, some said that this club was a home to them when their homes rejected them. That this club was a church for them when there was no room for them in their church. I have to wonder what church and synagogue and mosque and home would have looked like had we learned from thousands of years ago from the time of Moses how to hear Korach's actual challenge, not to see him through the eyes of those who are looking for evil and wrongdoing in him, but how to actually hear him for what it seems that he was bringing forward. Kulam Kedoshim. What if there's actually holiness in everyone? And that means that we might have to change the way that we think about and the way that we look at community and society. I wonder if Moshe had responded with love instead of with anger and with violence and resentment, if Korach and Datan and Aviram would have still thrown down the gauntlet and said all those things that I'm sure they would have regretted about wanting to go back to Egypt or if collectively that community could have found a better way to move forward. You know, in a couple weeks, we're going to read the story of Benot Tzalafchad, the daughters of Tzalafchad, who also challenged the law. They step forward and they say that the law is unjust. And maybe Moses has learned his lesson from this bloodbath that ensues in this week's Parsha. With God's permission in that story, the law changes. The community changes. We begin to see that there's justice and claims that come from the outside, that present a counter-narrative, some kind of counter-norm. A few years ago, many years ago now actually, when we were just starting Ikar, a young gay Jewish man came to see me in my office. His, um, his family had joined Ikar, and he came to tell me why he would not. And he said to me that he would never ever join a synagogue again, nor would he ever come back to Yom Kippur services because of the offense of the Torah reading that we read on Yom Kippur afternoon, which comes from Leviticus 18, where we repeat the prohibition on homosexuality, saying that it is a toeva, that it's, a, that it's abhorrent. And I told him that at Ikar, we don't read that reading that we changed it, we read Leviticus 19 instead for exactly that reason. It's hard enough, you have to hear it once a year. We're not gonna put 
that kind of reading into the service twice, and especially not on, on the holiest day of the year. And he said, no, it's not about just not reading it. He said, I've never once heard a rabbi stand up in front of a community and apologize for the generations of violence against me and people like me who have turned to faith in times of desperation and seeking and were told very loudly and very clearly again and again that we simply don't belong. And when he told me that, I immediately thought of the story of Martin Buber, the story of a of a young man who came to seek counseling from Martin Buber. And you might know this story. Buber, he, he made time to see this man. But, but Buber was busy and distracted. He was pretty important. He had things to do. He had books to write. And so he saw this man, but he didn't really see this man. A and the man left and he took his life. He died by suicide. And Buber writes about it afterwards. And he said that he understood when he heard about the suicide immediately that this man had come looking to be seen, looking for relief from his existential heartache, hoping that someone could ease his despair through real human connection. And Buber realized that he had made a life of, of authentic encounter, and yet he had failed to have an authentic encounter with this person in this moment. Had he had an I-thou encounter he writes later, he actually could have saved this person's life. So I begged this young guy who came to see me to come for Yom Kippur that year. And, and some of you were in the room, and I stood up and I uh, apologized. I apologized for the generations of violence against this person and so many like him who had turned to faith in times of desperation and seeking, and were told very clearly again and again that they did not belong. And I explained that we would not be party to that violence again. And as I said this in front of the community over in the JCC gym, my hands were shaking, and I was trying to understand why I was so nervous and so scared. And it's not because I worried I was going to get kicked out of the RA for this. It wasn't that. It wasn't because I worried we were going to lose members, because Ikar people are Ikar people for a reason. It wasn't that. I, I think I realized that I wouldn't have gotten there on my own, that had this young man not come in and told me that that, that reading was an act of violence against him, and that he needed to hear my voice acknowledging it, taking responsibility for it, apologizing for it, I never would have thought that it was on me to do that. I never would have presumed to think that my voice would matter in that way, and I never would have understood his experience in that room because that was an experience that I, frankly, as a heterosexual person, had never had. And I stood with hands trembling, recognizing the danger of creating spaces in which we don't allow ourselves to hear the voices that come from the margins that counter our narratives and challenge our assumptions and make us uncomfortable and force us to understand things differently. And instead, we build generation after generation of walls that, that, that perpetuate the same narratives, rabbi after rabbi reading the story of Korach and blaming him, instead of asking the question about Moshe and his own ability or inability to hear and to see and what might have happened if we had gone another way. I raise that for us on this, 
on this beautiful weekend of celebration, in a month of celebration, in which, as we learned from Sammy and from Aaron last night, we have to see not only where the struggle still is, but where the celebration is, how much we have grown and changed in the course of even the last few years, and in which we heard from Jen and from Ari about how much honor is bestowed on another human being by allowing that person to tell you who they are, not telling them who you think they are. The whole world has changed. The whole world has changed in the last few years. In 2018, Virginia elected the first trans person to the U.S. state legislature. And the country's first out trans person of color was elected as a state legislator in Kansas. We're talking about Kansas and Virginia. And at the same time that that's happening in 2021, this year is being called a record-breaking year for anti-transgender legislation. We've seen in the last several months more than 100 bills targeting trans and gender non-conforming and non-gender binary people, especially young people, in the first four months of the year alone. Arkansas became the first state to outlaw providing gender-affirming treatment to minors. There have been 65 bills proposed or passed around the country in the last several months alone. Bans on participating in same-gender youth sports. Bans on gender-affirming healthcare for minors. Curriculum bans requiring that parents give written consent for teachers to talk about gender in the classroom. Restricted IDs and other forms of documentation that prevent a person from reflecting their true gender identity. And of course, there's real and profound impact on every single one of these pieces of legislation. I don't even need to tell us. Last year, the Trevor Project did a survey in which they found that 40% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered suicide in the past year alone. It's absolutely possible that Korach was just a rabble-rouser, that he was just looking out for his own ego needs, that he really was an insurrectionist scaling the walls of power, drunk, intoxicated on a big lie. But it's also possible that he is a voice of humanity and that what he was calling Moshe to recognize is exactly what all of us need to recognize today, that there is an impact from our laws and our long-held assumptions and our norms. There is an impact on real human beings. And maybe what we need to do is learn how to open our eyes and our hearts, to be uncomfortable, to see pain and suffering that we were not trained to see, to see beauty and color and light that we were not trained to see. Our tradition sees him as the former, but I think that we can and we must see him as the latter. Last night, Jen Bailey said in one of the most beautiful evenings of pride celebration that I have ever experienced, and I really commend to all of you, take the time and, and listen to Sammy and, and listen to Aaron and, and Jen and Ari and think about what it means to, to live in a time in which we're actually invited to hear these voices and able to listen with love. 
Last night, in the context of that most incredible celebration and truth-telling, Jen lifted up that when someone is called by their proper pronouns, it's like giving someone a window into their soul. I never thought about it that way before because I never thought about my pronouns before because many cisgender people never thought twice about our pronouns. But there are voices now in our community that are telling us all that this needs to be a time of love and a time of awakening. And it's upon all of us to bestow that kind of dignity on one another. The text that has been most dear to my heart for so many years, the text that has shaped the way this community has learned how to love one another, tells the story of pilgrims who make their way up to the Beit HaMikdash, up to the Temple Mound, and walk into the room, and everybody who is part of the norm turns to the right and circles around the perimeter of the courtyard and then out the same door they came in. But those who don't see themselves as part of the norm, Misha Aru Bidavar, somebody who something happened to, they're different from everybody else in that moment, that day. Maybe it's grief, maybe it's illness, maybe it's a sense of alienation or isolation, maybe it's a sense of body dysmorphia or body euphoria, as Ari taught us last night. Those people go into the same space, but they don't pretend that they're just like everybody else. Because the glory of that sacred community is precisely found in the fact that some people walk in a different direction. And the obligation of that community is to lift up their eyes and to see everyone. Those who walk from right to left stop at every single person who's walking left to right and say, Malach, tell me about you. Because I know that there's something in your heart that I can learn from. If only Moshe had looked to Korach and said, Malach, Malacha, Malachem, tell me about you. How much bigger, how much better, how much more beautiful could our tradition and our community and this world be? So this is an invitation into a different kind of space creation. A time and a space in which we actually see one another, not with fear, not with distance, but with love, just with love, in which we allow ourselves to learn, to make mistakes, to get it wrong, and then to try again. But we guide ourselves and we hold one another with love. I thank our teachers this morning. I thank you all who've, who've taken the step of opening your mouths and sharing and inviting us all to look at the world in a different way. We are all better for it. Hi, it's Mayim Bialik, actor, neuroscientist, Ikar member, and lover of all things Jewish. Do you like what you're listening to? Please consider donating to Ikar so that we can continue creating more podcasts and fulfilling our mission of harnessing untapped energy in the Jewish community to reanimate Jewish life, embody moral courage, nurture the spirit, and work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Why don't you visit our website at ikar-la.org and give today?